0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Sam and I are coming with another in our series from the book of Isaiah. This week, we're coming to Isaiah chapter 36 and chapter 37, and the story of this king named Hezekiah. Now, Sam, I got to tell you, it is a bit of a breath of fresh air for yours truly here, because it seems like every (laughs) single time... We have gone to the old testament and seen the story of a king, whether it's like we had Ahaz last week, who was just wicked, and there's Mm -hmm. just one wicked king after another. Hezekiah is a good king.
1: Yeah. He's he actually comes through. It's like, hooray, we finally get one. Because you know, even with Uzziah where it says he did right in the eyes of the Lord, he ends really badly, you know, proudly going into the Lord's temple and feeling worthy of God's presence. And I mean, once he becomes proud and strong, he falls apart. And his son, Jotham, we don't hear a lot about, but he allowed worshiped on the high places. And Ahaz is murdering his own sons and the sacrifices to these pagan gods. And Hezekiah is going to be Ahaz's son. So he has watched his dad do all these really, really awful, wicked things. And, you know, you're expecting the son – to follow after him and yet God gives us this really really righteous king out of one of the most wicked kings in the history of Judah.
0: You know when when we were kind of touching base on this back and forth earlier or, or actually it was, last, it was last week now. Um you said to me something about that Hezekiah is the is proof of the power of a godly mother. Mm-hmm. Um because we have his mother's name Abijah. Is Abijah, what I've okay, said. long time yeah. So Abijah, she's uh, she's recorded in this, you know, in the history accounts, anyways, Mm -hmm. not here in Isaiah. Um, And so obviously she was a huge influence on Hezekiah for him to be so different than Dad.
1: Yeah, and we know that. See. Abijah is the daughter of a guy named Zechariah, and you think, okay, who who is Zechariah? Well, the Bible tells us much earlier that Zechariah was the guy who trained up King Uzziah to follow after the Lord. So like when Uzziah was a good king and he was following after the Lord, it was at the council of Zechariah. Zechariah's daughter is Abijah, and that will be the mother of Hezekiah, so she trains him up to love the Lord. And at home, that's incredibly dysfunctional because you got to remember when Hezekiah is growing up, his dad has killed his brothers, offering them in the fires of pagan worship. Abijah has, you know, had the broken heart of being a mother. We don't know if these sons were hers, but of having a husband who is a maniacal tyrant, uh, a horrible man. And yet she is faithful to raise Hezekiah up to fix his eyes on the Lord. And you see that. You see the fruits of a godly mother here. I mean, this this woman who doesn't get much fanfare in the story um, played a big role. God used her mightily to rescue His people.
0: Historically, at this time, uh, Judah is sort of a vassal state to the Assyrians at this point. From what I read, Mm -hmm. basically they were just paying tribute to the Assyrians and and hoping that they wouldn't attack them. Like it was just a they were pretty much a vassal state. Is that right?
1: Yeah, at this point, Judah is extraordinarily weakened. Um, you remember, so Hezekiah's dad Ahaz, during the story that we talked about last week, um, Syria and Israel had come through, had killed 120,000 men at least, took, you know, women and children into exile. So they're extremely weakened militarily speaking. Their army has been decimated by wars. And so when Assyria comes through, Assyria conquers Damascus and they conquer Israel and they would have come through. Judah understood at this point, we just pay our taxes. We send our money. um, We do whatever they say because we've been so decimated. Um, And Israel learned the hard way. Um, something that Hezekiah is going to learn this week. So when Israel is standing up to Assyria and they see their neighbors in Damascus had been conquered, Israel to the north is going, oh, my goodness, what do we do? And we're told that they go down to Egypt. They go to the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt at that time, who's a guy named Soa. And when Shalman who's the king of Assyria, sees that they're trying to put up a fight by going to Egypt – He just goes through and wipes Israel out. He takes all of them into exile in the the most cruel fashion imaginable. And so if you're Judah, you've watched what's happened when they put their hope in Egypt. Assyria was like, oh, really? You think Egypt's going to help you? And then they just came through and wiped out the northern ten tribes. It's the last we'll ever see of those northern ten tribes having any uh, firm grip in the land. So now here's Hezekiah with Judah, and you've got this mighty, barbaric, cruel, unbelievably militaristic people that are now holding you hostage. And Hezekiah, at the beginning of this, we know Hezekiah decided, I'm going to go to Egypt. I'm going to see if I can get the other big dog on the block to, to, to help me. Put up a defense against Assyria, and it doesn't it, – that turns out to not be such a good decision.
0: <laughs> yeah, and from the historical accounts, the the uh, the two chapters we're reading about from Isaiah today kind of have Isaiah's unique take on it, which is really more of a spiritual – the spiritual underpinnings and what's going mm-hmm. on uh, um, in that realm. But if you want to read, folks, if you want to read the historical account, which has more details about who did what and when mm-hmm. – um, You can find those in uh, 2 Kings chapter 18, and I think it goes through 19 and 20, and then 2 Chronicles chapter 29 through 32 will tell you the story of that. And when you read those, you find out that as Sam said, Judah had, had got together with Egypt, and Assyria in response, like comes charging into Judah, (laughs) and they, they take all of the defended cities, and they come right up to Jerusalem, and Hezekiah, says to the king of Assyria, he says, okay, I know I was wrong to rebel. You know, my bad. What's it going to take for you to go home? And he gives him a price, and it's a Mm -hmm. super high price. And Hezekiah, in order to pay the price, actually, it tells us in 2 Kings, actually has to strip the gold from the doors and the columns of the house of the Lord. Like, literally had to go out and to give him the shekels of silver and shekels of gold that were demanded, he had to melt down things from the temple.
1: Yeah, it just shows you we are a long way from Solomon. Yeah. Uh, Judah at this point is poor. Their military is decimated. It just looks like they have no hope of standing on their own two legs. They're just, I mean, they're decimated. Right.
0: And so that happens. um, And the Assyrian king kind of Goes away for at least what said it went back to his land. Clearly, Hezekiah was like, okay, he's gone now. Back to where we were. (laughs) (laughs) And so it happens again. Here comes Assyria roaring down. and, And what happens this time is the king doesn't come himself, but rather, and this is where we're going to pick up the story today, he's going to send his representative, which has the best name ever in the history of Bible names. We'll get to that in just a second, because here we are in Isaiah chapter 36, verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. They fell, as we mentioned. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh. I love that, Rabshakeh. (laughs) That's like the best ever. It feels like it should be the
1: name of a 1980s song, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Maybe. It's, got, like, 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 a yeah, it's like, like a disco band or something. Yeah, it's like a disco band.
0: But the Rabshaka was—he uh, was—he was not a military leader. He was like—it's—it's uh, it's a title that means it literally means chief cupbearer, but it would be like chief of staff or governor. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a—he was a diplomat. Um, but he didn't come by himself, it says, sent the Rabshaka with a great army from Lakish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's field. And in the Second Kings and Second Chronicles accounts, we find out that not only did he send the Rabshaka, but he also sent two of his trusted generals mm-hmm. um, along with this great army. Because if you're going to go have a conversation, Sam yeah. Bring, a, bring a great army.
1: It would be nice. That's a good negotiating tactic. It is. Are you going to agree with me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or, or should I have my armies and my generals uh, kind of convince you?
0: Take care of this, right. Yeah. So so this is what is uh, up against Jerusalem there. And Hezekiah, because Shennacherib sent three emissaries, basically two generals and a diplomat, he sends out his three guys. Um, verse 3, and Elakiam, the son of Hilkiah – who was over the household. So that, again, would have been sort of like Hezekiah's chief of staff, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Shebna, the scribe, so somebody that knows the law and knows the paperwork. And Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So these three guys would have been fairly important in Hezekiah's government, your scribe, Mm -hmm. your recorder. We're talking about people that manage the paperwork and are really high up in the government.
1: Mm -hmm. And one of the things to notice here, you know, the Bible throws out these details, you know, that Hezekiah is standing out by the pools on the way to the fuller's field. What we remember from last week is that when Isaiah shows up to confront uh, King Ahaz and and to plead with Ahaz to trust the Lord, where is Ahaz? He's at this same spot. You know, he's out looking at his water and he's trying to figure out, can I withstand a siege? And so here's Hezekiah when they show up. And they're going to have a conversation in the same place. And what it's meaning to do is it's telling you Hezekiah is about to face kind of the same decisions that Ahaz had to face. Ahaz does not trust the Lord. Um, He goes to Assyria, if you remember. But now Hezekiah is going to be called, are you going to trust the Lord when it makes even less sense than it did for Ahaz?
0: And the interesting part is that Hezekiah, as as we've tried to give you the impression, Hezekiah is in a considerably weaker position, even, than his Ahaz.
1: You know, and when it says that Rabshakeh, the Rabshakeh, <laughs> comes with this great army from Lachish – Lachish was one of the last cities that was like the guardian on the way to Jerusalem. It, you know, it kind of held out the the enemies. It was the last great city on the way to Judah. And if you go and you look at all the Assyrian records, you know, the Sennacherib Prism, where you know the king of Assyria Sennacherib, writes down all the records of all this stuff. He talks about how they took Lachish, and he talks about the unbelievable cruelty that they did to the people. At Lachish, mm. and so when it says that he sends his army from Lachish, it's on the way, having decimated this city, and there's nothing left. There's nothing left to guard Jerusalem because they've taken the last great guard dog city right. on the way to Jerusalem. Mm. So everything about this it's dire straits. And by the way, that uh, the guy Eliakim, who is um, Hezekiah's chief of staff, mm-hmm. we have records of him. I, I sent you actually a picture Wait, of the that. seal. Yeah, where this, we have records of his existence. And it's just kind of fun because when you get into this story, we're talking 700 years before Jesus is born. You really can reconstruct virtually every part of this story except the conversations through historical records at this point. So what we're reading is historically verifiable. It's really fun.
0: Verse 4, it says, Then the Rabshakeh says to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I want to stop for just a second and then notice something here. Rabshakeh is disrespecting Hezekiah here. Say now to Mm -hmm. Hezekiah, not your king. Do not say to your king or even King Hezekiah. He's like, say now to Hezekiah. Thus says Mm -hmm. the great king, the king of Assyria. (laughs) I don't think any of that was missed on them. Basically, the Rabshakeh was saying your king isn't even a king.
1: And at this point, Hezekiah is supposed to be kneeling, ultimately, to the authority of Assyria. And so it's almost like he's threatening, you know, deposing him even from reigning over Jerusalem. Yeah. You know, he's he's just a
0: commoner. So verse 5, the Rabshakeh continues, I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Verse 6, look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt to all who trust in him. That's a you know, <laughs> one of the things that that this is a very well constructed argument that we're going to be going through here with the Rabshakeh. I, I really give I really give credit for that. When I when I read through the whole of chapter thirty six, I thought, man, this is a masterful combination of half truths and out of context truths of religious misinterpretations and of, like, sweet talk and offers of bribery. Like, it's got mm-hmm. everything in it <laughs> that you would need to try to persuade somebody of something. And mm-hmm. the first thing that he starts off with is this statement that Egypt can't be trusted. And you know what, Sam? He's right. Egypt can't be trusted.
1: Yeah. And this, that's a lesson that they have learned in the Bible. The people of God have learned that from the very beginning. I mean, if you remember, when when they, whenever they go down to Egypt to be rescued— It always blows up in their face. So I mean you go back and you start with Abraham who when the famine comes, he doesn't trust God in the promised land and so he takes his wife down to Egypt and she gets taken into Pharaoh's harem and all kinds of problems develop um, when he goes down to Egypt. When when the famine hits during the lifetime of Isaac, he's told do not go down to Egypt. Trust the land and the Lord – or trust the Lord and the land. And Isaac's blessed with crops a hundredfold. He becomes tremendously wealthy through that season. Then famine hits during Jacob's lifetime. And what does Jacob do? He sends his sons to Egypt. And what's going to happen to them? They're enslaved for 400 years. So it's like every single time that the people of God decide they're going to go down to Egypt, they meet ruin. Yeah. Egypt always blows up in their face. And so when he says, you're going to trust Egypt, every time anyone leans on Egypt, <laughs> their their hands get pierced. Um, and he's right. Egypt, going to Egypt never pays
0: off. I love the word picture. You're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt. Well, if you break a reed, yeah. it creates a sharp, jagged edge, but it also shows that it's weak. That it's not, Mm -hmm. it's nothing that can be leaned on, but when you lean on it, it says it will go into his hand and pierce it. That's some very good descriptive language. That's a, that, that's a very flowery way of saying, first of all, these guys are really too weak to help you. Secondly, if you rely on them, they're going to hurt you eventually. Mm -hmm. It's like, I mean, it's great. in, in the ancient world,
1: they very much understood that Egypt was even a picture of the kingdom of death. Everything about it was obsessed with death, from pyramids and mummies, and their Bible is the Book of the Dead. Mm-hmm. You know, the Pharaoh had the crown with the serpent on it. Well, what does that bring to mind? I mean, everything about Egypt was like, you know, you had the kingdom of God, and Egypt was like the other kingdom. Uh, and it, everything it represented was bad. But it's so tempting because there's wealth there and there's yeah. provision there. And, and and you're tempted to run down and trust in that kingdom. But every time people do, it blows up in their face.
0: So the Rab Rabshakeh, then he opens with this true statement. He tells him something that's true. You can't trust Egypt. And then in verse 7, he moves to his first religious misapplication. He said, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and, and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, "You shall worship before this altar," referring to the altar in the house of the Lord? And that's a, a you know, this is a situation where the Rabshakeh is is trying to show these people that I understand what's going on with your religion. I know your religion as well as you do. But if he did, he would know that the Lord was pleased
1: <laughs> very much, so, Yeah,
0: and Hezekiah doing that
1: yeah these high places so so when he comes and he says you know oh hezekiah has torn down the high places that are on all these hills and these altars that are outside of Jerusalem so he's taking away people's ability to worship the lord their god no if you understood what they were doing at these high places and this is this is a little adult so brace yourself um, They would – they would. it was like synchronizing different forms of worship and so they would go on to these high places and they would worship the Lord and they would act out what they wanted the Lord to do and they would do pretty uh, X-rated things on these high places a lot of times and they would fall into idolatry and they, they would claim that they were worshiping the Lord Yahweh when really they were just chasing after their own appetites and doing whatever they wanted to. And so the Lord never liked these high places. People always went to excess and fell into to paganism on these things. And so the Lord would have been thrilled that Hezekiah was doing away with them.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's been always something that when you look at the different kings and ones that do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, it seems like the high places are that extra added effort that not a lot of them did. A lot of mm-hmm. them, it says, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but allowed worship in the high places. -hmm. So it shows that Hezekiah went the extra mile for the Lord. Yeah, he's faithful. He is. So, verse eight, the Rabshakeh now begins to continue. He's gonna. He's gonna has a weird proposal here. He says, "Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Syria, and I will give you two thousand horses, if you are able on your part to put riders on them." So what seems like an offer of a gift, you know, hey, just all you have to do is just pledge to the dark side and I'll give you my lightsaber or, you know, pledge to my master, (laughs) the king of Assyria, and we'll give you 2,000 horses. That is if you can put riders on them, which is, Mm -hmm. again, it's a a fairly clever way of saying you don't have 2,000 people that could fight as cavalry soldiers.
1: Yep. You're totally decimated. We'll we'll give you the tanks. You don't have people to drive them. Like you are utterly weakened. Are you going to sit here and try to negotiate
0: with me? You have no leg to stand on. Which is something that he's going to make plain now here in verse 9. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? So then, after the Rabshakeh, you know, makes the point rather over-dramatically <laughs> of saying you don't even have enough guys to fight even our smallest group of soldiers. Verse ten again, he pivots back to this religious misinterpretation. He says, "Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it?" In other words, didn't didn't your God send me? Have I come without the Lord? The Lord said to me, "Go up against this land and destroy it," mm-hmm. which is a it's a fabrication. I mean, they. The Lord did not, at least the other place that I saw, the Lord didn't tell these guys, go attack my people in Judah.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's what's interesting here is he's using the Lord's personal name. So when you look at the Hebrew behind that translation, the Lord, right. sometimes it's Elohim and sometimes it's Yahweh. Elohim is kind of a more standard way of just saying God. Um, but Yahweh's personal name, it's his covenant name that he's had with the people. And so now what he's saying, I mean, he's using God's name. Have I now come up without Yahweh against this land? So he's calling them in there, you know, pretending like he's the one with the relationship to the Lord and with the Lord's blessing, Yahweh's blessing, to come and destroy them.
0: Which is sort of another classic uh, element to this. What I was calling this persuasion mix or cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems as seems as though when people come to try to convince us of something, they'll bring these things of like unrelated truths like they'll Mm -hmm. say something that's true and you'll go well that's true which is supposedly make me think that they're telling me the truth but of course it doesn't really have any bearing on how they're applying it it's a true statement but it doesn't have an application to what point they're trying to make and because for example egypt couldn't be relied on whether or not they were your allies you just can't rely on egypt it's a true statement
1: yeah and And we we do this to ourselves all the time. You know, basically what he's saying is if God really loved you, he would have prevented me from doing this. But here I am. So clearly the Lord is against you. The Lord has shown us favor. We've conquered everybody we've come against. Why hasn't he stopped us? Clearly he's with us. Uh, And he's decimating them. I mean, we do that to ourselves all the time. You go through a rough season in life. You lose your job. you, You know, whatever might come and you think, is God angry with me? And he's appealing to that human instinct in us. Where if something's going wrong in our lives, we go: Is the Lord angry with us? Has He turned in us? And that's what you know. That's what He's trying to force them to to wrestle with. Is clearly God is against you. He's allowed me to be here. Here I am to destroy you. Right. Um, which you know, you know, even even if you were the most solid in faith, you kind of go, Yeah, where is God? Um, you know, you can't help but ask those questions.
0: So it's uh so even though this is seven hundred years before the birth of Christ approximately, um, these are the same kinds of arguments and persuasions that we face today. Mm-hmm. People today, I can't tell you the number of times that I've had somebody in a conversation about something to do with the Lord. Tell me what I believe. It's like, let me tell you what you believe." <laughs> yeah, You Christians believe. I'm like, really? Go go ahead. I want to hear this. This will be fun. Uh, And then they'll tell me what I believe. And it's just as crazy as the Lord is upset that Hezekiah tore down all those altars. No. No, the Lord's happy with it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And right before all this happened, Hezekiah is going to be the one who destroys the the bronze serpent. Mm -hmm. Um, If you remember, that was one of the things when Moses did, did that in the Old Testament where he raises up the bronze serpent to heal all of the people. And what does Hezekiah see? He sees all these people that are now worshiping this thing that God used to heal people. And now they're like, oh, there must be some divine power in this bronze pole. And they start worshiping it. And when Hezekiah destroys the thing because they were worshiping it wrongly, the Lord was pleased with Hezekiah. Right. Um, but surely the people would have been like, oh, you've destroyed something sacred. But anything that's taking the people's eyes off of the Lord to where
0: they're falling into wrong worship, getting rid of that is a good thing. So by this point, Hezekiah's guys, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, I get the – this is just me, again, Mark reading into the situation, but I kind of imagine them, Sam, sort of starting to look at each other. Like, <laughs> this guy is uh, pretty slick. He's pretty smooth. And they know that they have an audience because this is within earshot of some of the people that are that are listening. So verse 11 tells us, Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Um, Aramaic at that time, I mean, Aramaic at one point would later on would become more widely spread Mm -hmm. as a spoken language. But at that time, it was something that the sort of high society and it was like a diplomatic language of that Mm -hmm. time. Uh, so the average person would not know Aramaic. They would know Hebrew, but not Aramaic.
1: And so, I mean, you, you get it. It's like he's asking questions that are going to really shake our people more than they're already shaken. Let's talk in a different language. Right. <laughs> can, can you make all these threats in a language that they won't understand? Uh, um,
0: so I understand, yeah. their, I understand their impulse, but the Rabshakeh is having none of it. Verse 12, but the Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? <laughs> mm-hmm. So in other words, they have an interest in this too, guys. Those people on the wall are going to be starving to death when we besiege your city. So shouldn't they have a voice in this? I mean, that mm-hmm. seems like a very reasonable thing to say.
1: This guy's masterful. He <laughs> I mean, he's, is. He's like, he's I'm basically what he's saying to all the men on the wall, your
0: leaders are betraying you. They don't want you to hear. And in fact, that comes out in verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew. He's like, If in case you haven't heard this, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. For he will not be able to deliver you. And then in verse twelve, verse fifteen, rather, we get to the crux of the matter. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, "The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria." That's really in the end when we get to the when we get all through this very masterful concoction of persuasion that the Rabshakeh is going to give them. At the end of all of this, it boils down to that. He's saying, Mm -hmm. do not trust God.
1: Yeah. Yeah, when you say don't trust Hezekiah, I can go, yeah, maybe not. (laughs) But at the heart of this, when he's saying don't trust the Lord, that's their only hope here. Yeah. I mean, you you look at just the statistics that are going on this matchup. It's like, you know, a boxing match. They give you the tail of the tape and the height and the weight and all the reach. Like, this is a David and Goliath match. Judah has no shot. No shot. They don't have an army. They don't have resources. They don't have equipment. Hezekiah, if he was the most brilliant military strategist, could not figure out a way to overcome and defeat the onslaught of the Assyrians. And so when he says, you know, don't trust in Hezekiah, like even if you think Hezekiah is the greatest on earth, he can't save you here. But when he says, nor trust in the Lord, that really is their only hope. Right. He's saying God has, you know, allowed us to come to your doorstep. He's not going to save you, and He knows that is the only appeal that's left that would give the people any hope to hang on to the promises of uh, that, of
0: God. I, that's it. I also think it's a fairly common thing today to have people who they appeal to the apparent evidence of the world around us and not to the actual words of the Lord. It's like, mm-hmm. we're not going to actually go to the word of the Lord and let's open the Bible and let's look at these verses and try to, and and, and understand what they mean. Instead, they're going to hold something up and go, Hey, you know what? If your God was loving, do you think that your God would, would wouldn't save everybody that's dying from COVID or wouldn't save my, you know parents' mm-hmm. marriage or wouldn't say whatever it 's like they they point to some evidence in the world around you and say, "Look, this shows you what your God thinks and does and is mm-hmm. uh, they don't go to the actual Word of the Lord they appeal to human wisdom interpreting circumstance
1: yeah and and you know when Jesus comes so if you 're a Christian. When Jesus comes, like if there ever was anybody, like in every single situation that you find Jesus in, what is he doing always? Now he's God in the flesh, right? Yeah. And he is always quoting scripture of the Old Testament, right? Always. When when he's, you know, in the wilderness facing temptation, what comes out of his mouth, you know, when he's facing hunger and the temptations of the enemy. Scripture, boom, boom, boom. At the, at, you know, when he's re- talking to John the Baptist, it's scripture, boom. When he's talking, you know, his first sermons in the synagogue, it's scripture, scripture. Even from the cross, imagine this, even from the cross, what is he crying out? Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Like scripture, my right. God, my God, I, why have you forsaken me? Scripture. Jesus places such incredible Authority on Scripture that even though he is God in the flesh, it's like his go-to. When you cut him, he just bleeds Scripture. He puts such weight on the authority of Scripture that it's preposterous for any Christian to say, well, now that Jesus has come, the Old Testament doesn't matter. Like Jesus himself is a testimony sure. to the fact that these words matter. Um, I was listening to a, a sermon recently by Tim Keller, who he's just a he's got tremendous insights, very wise. And he said, he gave an illustration to the congregation in the sermon, and I thought it was pretty, you know, because we all want signs like, God, show me a sign that you're really with me. And, and he said, you know, if an angel came into our church right now, And everybody saw it and you turn to your neighbor and say, do you see that? Do you see that? I'm not going crazy, right? Like you see the glow, you know, and everybody saw the angel and just unbelievable glory. And the angel came and contradicted one single word of the gospel. The apostle Paul says you are to consider that angel anathema. Imagine that. Like if an angelic being came and contradicted the words of Scripture – you tell that angel go to hell that's the weight that <laughs> that Paul and Jesus give to the scriptures and so this idea that we're going to go by feelings or or even an angel's words himself the scripture comes and says no this is the final authority it's not on your feelings it's not you know so that's pretty amazing
0: yeah
1: but we what do we do well no i i i want a sign i want some special insight i want to i want and God has given you his word right. on a page, his divine authority, and we look at it and shrug. Yeah.
0: And that's what they, I mean, that's that's what this guy, this this masterful manipulator is trying to get them to do. He's like, he's appealing to what they see happen. Hey, you, you know, Hezekiah tore down all the altars. Surely that makes your guide mad. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and did not, and look, I'm here. I've conquered everything. Do you think I could conquer everything if your God didn't did help me do it.
1: Just, just for context, that that passage where Paul talks about even if an say he says if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's Galatians one eight. Mm-hmm. So
0: the word of God is the ultimate authority. So we've you know we've dispensed with the. Uh, implied threats at this point from the rabshaka you know we're, we're we're kind of past the implied threats <laughs> we're past the half truths we're in plot we're past the religious attempted at a religious uh, appropriation and misinterpretation and now he's coming to the sweet talk part of this because this is the full deal this is this is the complete you know persuasion attempt this is a fully well-rounded arguments like i've given you these true statements that maybe they don't apply, but they're still true. And I've quoted you some, you know, I've talked to you about your Lord. I've used his name, Yahweh. So I sound like I know your God, like I can speak for him, even though I can't. And now, verse 16, he says, do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you shall eat from his own vine and everyone from his own fig tree And every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern. So this is a promise, like everything's (laughs) going to be great. You guys can go back home and everything's great. Verse 17, (laughs) until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So he's saying, I'll let you go back home, enjoy your own vineyards and your own cisterns, until of course I get, introduce you to the Assyrian relocation plan,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and take you away to another land that's going to be just as good. I'm sure, It'll really. Be great.
1: Just get right on this train. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's this is, and if you knew the the nature of the Assyrians and and their reputation in the ancient world. They are every bit as barbaric and awful and evil as ISIS or the Taliban. So when they say, you know, come, make peace, surrender your power, come to us. We're going to give you lots of grain and you're going to have wine and it's going (laughs) to be wonderful. (laughs) When in reality is they would have met the side of a blade, you know, to take off their head.
0: We're going to let you go home. You're going to enjoy the comforts of your own home until, of course, I come and relocate you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but it's
1: always – that's I mean that dynamic of do you – when things don't make sense to chasing after the Lord, when they're painful, when they're hard, when it requires you to to take up a cross and crucify your desires and you're like, why in the world am I doing this? The offer that's in the mind is always, or I could just chase after my flesh. It would be so good. There will yes. be a lot of grain and new wine and a land yep. of bread and vineyards. Like your brain <laughs> it traces out and says – Man, if I just chase this desire, at least I can have some sense of yeah. happiness. And yeah. you know, I'll put my obedience on the shelf and chase after this. And what ends up happening is the same thing that ends up happening if if they go out to the Assyrians. There's always consequences, always slavery, always pain when you chase after your own desires and abandon the counsel of the Lord, always. Yeah. And the same things at play here. But, man, is it tempting. Because cause she – in your own eyesight, in your own flesh, you're looking around going, we don't stand a chance yeah. if God doesn't move. And God didn't move for, for the, the our tribes to the north, Israel, right. that had totally spat in his face. And so far I've seen city after city after city falling to Assyria on their way here. What do I do? Um, it's at least there. Maybe if we surrender and go out, maybe there will be something and it's tempting. Yep. It would be super tempting in that
0: situation to say, okay, we give up. Anytime that you start a, a sentence with, it would be so much easier if <laughs> you know, Yeah. you, you kind of know what you're what you're getting into there. So um, so verse 18, the Rabshekha continues, once again shifting back to the, the religious side of things, but this is a very interesting statement. He says, beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Anybody? Has anybody resisted us? Verse 19, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharic? Sefer Vayim. Vayim. Whenever it's
1: Hebrew, you got the, the I am at the end. You want to ah, throw em it. in there. Makes, okay. makes you feel smart.
0: Sefer Vayim. Elohim. Okay. Cherubim. Yes.
1: Seraphim. Yeah. So
0: there we go. So the Sefer Vayim. Where are the gods of the Sefer Vayim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? I want to stop for just a second and say Samaria is Israel. Mm-hmm. And Israel was so far gone. That the Rab Shaka doesn't know they follow Yahweh.
1: Yeah, isn't that crazy? Did you
0: notice that? I mean, I'm not making wild. that up. It's like.
1: <laughs> and that was true. They, I mean, they had given themselves to every other god under the sun. Um, but man, yeah, I had not noticed that when I read this passage before. That's wild. It is wild.
0: Verse 20, who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. So there's the the big argument. First, we start off with, let me tell you, you can't rely on your army. You can't rely on your allies. Um, Your God doesn't want you to fight me anyway. It would be so much easier if you would just give up, and then we wrap the whole thing up with, and if you think you can trust in God, look at what happened to everybody else around you. Mm
1: -hmm. But there's one big difference between all of those other – because Jerusalem, by the way, is just as wicked as everybody else. You know, you go back to this day – I mean, remember in Ahaz, it says the people of Judah were repulsive, like they were living just utterly wicked. And even though Hezekiah is righteous, the people of Judah are still fumbling into sin and rebellion against God. But what makes Jerusalem different? Because that's the question. He's asking, why should Jerusalem be any different? And you know what the answer is – The answer is it's not that, oh, this city and this territory or the dirt is somehow different. It's that God gave a promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 – that God was going to raise up the Savior of the world from the seed of the woman. And as you fast forward through the scriptures, it gets more specific. He's going to raise up the Savior of the world from the line of Judah. And then it gets more specific. He's going to raise up the Savior of the world from the line of David and Solomon. And so in the city of Jerusalem is the hope of the world because from the line of this king, Hezekiah, is going to come Jesus. And so when God says – I will not allow Jerusalem to fall. I will not allow this king to fall. When he defends Jerusalem, he is defending my salvation and your salvation because in Hezekiah, and his line, is the hope of the world. And so when – (laughs) <laughs> he asked that question. Why should the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? This isn't a historical exercise from 700 years before Jesus is born or 2,700 years ago today. The answer, why should the Lord defend Jerusalem from the king of Assyria? The answer really is you. Yeah. The sal- your salvation yeah. is dependent on Jerusalem surviving and that king surviving because in him is the hope of the world. Yeah. That's powerful. This story is about us, not just them.
0: And the Lord will not allow that promise to fail. So let's listen to what the people's response is. Verse 21, it tells us, But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. So the people were told in advance by Hezekiah, don't say a word. And they listened. Mm -hmm. They didn't say a word. It's like all of those arguments that the Rabshakeh had just offered them it was just a giant like waste of time on his part. They were going to listen to their king.
1: Oh, and faithful. None of them none of them fell for it. You know? yeah. Here he is saying, Hey, you know, you're a long ways away from your king. You come with me and you get lots of reward. Yep. Nope. Yeah. They just hold firm. So that's that's impressive. These are these are faithful men.
0: Well, and it's just again, it shows the effect that having a good king like Hezekiah, I, I think that that, that inspires loyalty in, mm-hmm. in the people that follow him
1: yeah I don't know what the connection is either but you know that like when Jesus is brought up and all the false allegations are falling on him you know one of the prophecies that Isaiah will write is that he stood silent before his accusers like a sheep right. before the shears um, and here they are you know in front of all these accusations in front of all the the temptations and throwing it at him do you believe this and do you believe this you don't stand a chance you don't stand a chance. Their, their response is to be quiet, right? Right. Which it seems to be like that is one of the great marks of of the deliverance that comes from God when, you know, be you have nothing to do but be quiet and wait for the Lord to fight for you, right? And here they are being quiet. Jesus was quiet. Like he doesn't engage all this terror, <laughs> you know, the – genuine, like legitimate fears and everything else, it's like I'm going to trust in the Lord, I'm going to be quiet, and I'm going to let him fight for me. And I think when Hezekiah told them, don't you answer, don't engage, um, don't don't get into the mud, you just sit there
0: and you bring back word. That's probably pretty good advice to us with respect to social media. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, you know, just keep your mouth shut. You know, yep.
1: Uh, <clears throat> I, I've Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the, the conclusion to this, verse 22, the end of the chapter here, we find out what the representatives of Hezekiah are going to do. Then Eli- Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, in case we forgot who they were, and Shebna the scribe, in case we forgot who he was, Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn mm-hmm. and told him the words of the Rabshekah. So their clothing being torn, that's a sign of, of great duress, mm-hmm. um, maybe deep mourning. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that's that's not sin, by the way. You know, sin would have been if they'd have said, We have no trust in the Lord and we're bailing, you know, we're we're gonna join sides with the king of Assyria. But it is not sinful to look at circumstances that you don't know how the Lord is gonna answer them mm-hmm. and to tear your clothes in mourning. You know, that's, it's just not, you know, you see Job do this. You see lots of, of godly people that will repent and mourn and sackcloth and ashes and you realize and recognize your inadequacy and you come back in deep distress and mourning. This is not, this is not sin because what they're doing, even as they're tearing their clothes or putting dust on their head, is they are clinging with their fingernails to hope that the Lord is going to move. Right. They, they didn't go back home with the king of Assyria or the messenger. Right. They came back to Hezekiah saying, this doesn't look good. I don't understand it. Yeah. But we're back and we will trust in the Lord.
0: And I do think that's, uh, I think that's an important point because I think that there are times when people feel guilty about the fact that they have that you know, they feel like they have to keep up a, a brave face. You know, the Lord understands no. that sometimes – it tells us in the Psalms that he is close to the the broken and the crushed in spirit. It's like yeah. the Lord knows that there are going to be times when we become that way, when we get that way. And God is telling you, that's okay. That's mm-hmm. when you need to lean on me the most.
1: You know, one of my favorite examples of that comes – and you get to see Jesus' direct response. Um But in Matthew 11 – you know jesus is going about his ministry and he's radically different than what most of the jews had expected of the messiah
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know he wasn't leading a geopolitical movement he wasn't you know coming to overthrow rome he was coming and talking about how you needed to die to yourself and how you needed to take up your cross and as he's going around preaching all of this the the john the baptist is in a prison outside of the promised land at a prison called Macaris, and he's hearing all this, and it's just – he's he's nervous, like, oh my gosh, I have lived my – the last part of my ministry pointing tens, hundreds of thousands of people to give their lives to Jesus. You know, he's pointing everybody to Jesus, and he has this moment right before he's going to be beheaded and put to death, where in his prison cell he's going, did I make a mistake? Yeah. Did I make a mistake? And so he sends two of his disciples to go to Jesus to ask the question, are you really him or should we look for someone else? Because they can't make sense of this whole, you know, kingdom of God thing. And Jesus doesn't say, Oh, John, you, you almost made it, you know, but you failed at the last moment and you, you expressed doubt in me and therefore you're a disappointment. What Jesus says back to these two disciples is, I want you to go back to John, and I want you to tell him what you see and what you hear, that the deaf hear and the blind receive sight and good news is preached to the poor and the dead are raised, and he gives all these examples. But then, in their hearing, as they turn around to walk back to John, he looks at the audience, And he begins praising John to the rooftop, saying that not a more faithful prophet among women has ever been born, right? Yeah. Born to women. Wow. Like, what an encouragement. You know, if you've ever been at that spot where you're like, oh, man, is this this real? Can I trust? Like, think of John who is terrified that he's made a mistake. Mm -hmm. He is plagued with doubt and, again, from a prison cell on the on the eve of his death, clinging with fingernails to the hope of Christ. And what does Jesus say? Man, that kind of faith, when it doesn't make sense, when when you can't figure it out and you're still not willing to let go of me even though everything is telling you to, that is the kind of faith that makes you greater than any prophet that's come before you, John. And I want you to know that. What a Savior. Like these kinds of doubts, the tearing your clothes, that's not a sign that you lack faith. If you're clinging to the Lord and tearing your clothes and not knowing how it's going to play out, that is marvelous faith. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, we knew when we were going to start this, folks, that uh, this one was going to be long because it was two chapters, 36 and 37. And so this is the place where we're going to bid you goodbye for this episode. And if you stick around for just a second or, or listen to the next one, I'm going to release them at the same time. We'll be picking up with part two, which is the picking up in chapter 37. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.